Hi, welcome to More Life the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, reform, and advocacy. I'm your host, Vinkivia Gardner. Thank you for joining me today. So today on this episode, we'll be t- we'll be discussing the topic of desistance um, and really trying to break down what that means and give you guys a better understanding of just the concept in general. So with me today, I have Dr. Audrey Hickert. She is a SIU Carbondale faculty member. She received her PhD at University of Albany where her dissertation examined confinement as a setting for change using data from the Netherlands. Uh, Prior to that, she conducted program and policy analysis for 11 years at the Utah Criminal Justice Center, where she was able to collaborate with a lot of justice stakeholders at jails, prisons, community corrections, and several other agencies. But her research interest spans kind of around post-conviction justice interventions with a focus on understanding the mechanisms that affect life course trajectories. So without further ado, I'll allow Dr. Audrey Hicker to kind of say anything that she wants to say. And if she doesn't have anything, we'll jump right into our conversation today. Thank you, Vankivia. First, I want to uh, thank you for having me on this podcast. I think the topic of more life is really important when thinking about reentry, and um, it's my pleasure to be here and talk with you about this important topic. You know, and I, I appreciate that. And, you know, given your, your background and, um, you know, the research you've done, I think you're, you know, you'll be really good with explaining this topic to us today. So I think for us to start the kind of conversation, um, <laughs> one of the things that I've just noticed, like, just talking about desistance and um, things like that is just, there are a couple of words that are used like interchangeably in the criminal justice system. So we have reentry, we have recidivism, and then we have desistance. And a lot of times, like I said, the words are just thrown around uh, and used the same. Um, and even like just thinking about just recidivism, I've, I hear so many people say, well, you know, desistance is the opposite of that, or, you know, it, it, you know, and I, I guess that's yep. where I want to start. Like, I feel like that makes the most sense of, can you tell us like, what actually is desistance and how is it different from these other two words that we're using? Yes, absolutely. I think in any conversation like this, it's really important to start with, what are we even talking about? And the concept of desistance, like a lot of concepts in social science is a really sticky one, right? There's no uniform or set meaning that all researchers, practitioners, advocates agree with. And so we can kind of talk about what the two main definitions are and then some of the like challenges and issues associated with both of them. So the first definition of desistance is the one that you sort of refer to, which is sort of the opposite side of the coin of recidivism. So if recidivism is we have observed a person re-engaging in criminal activity, whether it's through a criminal justice contact or self-report, then desistance is the opposite of that. No recorded future contact with the justice system or no recorded future um, like self-reported crime. Um, the problem with that is is cessation might only last for a certain period of time, right? So has someone truly desisted or are they just on sort of a break from criminal activity? So that definition is kind of a challenge. The second definition and the one that's actually gaining a lot more popularity um, in the discipline of criminal justice and criminology and also among policymakers is the definition of desistance as a process and a process of change leading towards cessation. So a person may have not 
completely committed engaging in criminal acts yet, but we see some sort of transformation happening in their life where they're dynamic and declining in either severity or frequency of um, engaging in crime. And this could be, again, through official measures or through self-reports, but we're looking at some sort of indication that a person is moving towards a law-abiding um, behavior pattern. And, you know, this one's even harder to measure because how much change is really, you know, important change that means someone's getting on a different path in their life versus just random variation in either opportunity for crime or even random variation in whether or not crime is detected. Right. And I think that is a a good distinction between the two of them, because um, that's definitely my understanding of it as like recidivism is very much yes or no. Either you committed, you re-engaged or you didn't. And desistance is this process that is it's long term and um and, it, and it's kind of, it's kind of rocky like uh, on top of that there there's some highs there's some lows and like you said um it's it's very much just a process so i guess like with it this idea of using it or describing it as a process what is i guess like what does that even what do you mean by like it's a process like what does that look like yeah so um this is actually an area like i said it's gaining a lot of traction in the discipline both the National Academies of the Sciences and the National Institute of Justice have put out um, reports in the last several months that have talked about, let's focus on desistance. Let's dig into this really complicated topic. And particularly in the National Academies of Sciences report, I believe the title was something like moving beyond recidivism. Because just like you said, they don't want to think about re-entry success as a very you know black and white measure of failure or success but looking at desistance as the process of changing engagement with criminal behavior changing in the direction of course lesser and lesser or less severe over time not more um, but also change in other domains of a person's life right so maybe even if someone has a recidivism event during re-entry what if they also have a lot of more positive changes in other life domains like employment education family, civic engagement, right? So someone can have signals of desistance, even if they do have a repeat criminal justice contact, if we can see um, you know, evidence of a person moving towards a more conventional lifestyle. And so that can be behavioral evidence like those things that I mentioned. And then it can also be evidence of internal shifts, which of course are even harder to capture, but that's something that theories of desistance look at a lot, which is, what are the changes happening inside a person that might signal to us that they are having a shift in their criminal thinking or criminal identity or a shift in having more agency and more belief that they can make choices and have control over the direction of their life and less fatalism. So, you know, both these um, subjective factors inside of a person and the structural sort of things around them can interplay in the process of desistance and what we're trying to do as a field is look at studying desistance as a process and finding those markers that will help us identify people who are on that path. Right. And I think that is a, a great transition. And uh, I've actually looked at uh, quite a few of the things that you're talking about, just like even the white paper from the NIJ of, you know, about desistance um, and some of the, you know, the new information that they're putting out. And I do think it's a very, um, 
very needed route uh, and could spark a lot of change with where we're trying to go with, you know, reentry and just the criminal justice system in general. And one of the things that you just mentioned um, is just like what does kind of motivate people to go into this, you know, area of desistance or to desist from crime. And I was wondering, can you talk a little bit more about that? Like what does motivate these individuals to kind of desist from criminal activity? Yeah. So if you don't mind if I put on my sort of like nerdy professor hat. Um, I, did, best, I did not at all. <laughs> thank you. The best way to actually approach this topic of desistance is to sort of take a step back um, and talk about the literature and the theories from which the study of desistance comes from. So the process of desistance is really closely related to research on criminal careers and also research um, and theories in what we call the life course perspective. And the life course perspective are just all of these different theoretical perspectives that became really popular in the end of the last century and the start of the 2000s, looking at, let's understand people at the place where they are in their lives and look at a bigger picture than just, you know, some of the micro things happening in like social relationships or, or in their neighborhood. Um, and so you say, what are some of the things that impact um, desistance. Well, there's this whole continuum, but basically there's one school of thought that says the things that impact desistance are the things in the social world around you. So the main theory associated with this is Samson and Lobb's age-graded theory of informal social control. That's a mouthful. What Samson and Lobb's theory means is basically things in the structure around you in your external life can impact you and be a positive turning point and help you make a change. So the things that they are most commonly associated with are things like marriage and work. And so they were studying young men um, in the glug and glug data that came out of Boston um, in the earlier part of the 20th century. And they looked at some interviews and records over their whole life. And they found even young men that were on a very delinquent path when they entered young adulthood and they had these positive opportunities, these life-changing events like good marriages and entering into high quality work or joining the military, they would have a turning point in their life and they would have a change in their behavior pattern. And they would say that these social or structural things help a person change their behavior because they have a bond now to some pro-social part of society. And they care about what, you know, the spouse or the coworkers or the boss things, and they have more of a stake in conformity. And so there's some social control happening with those other entities, right? You maybe don't want to stay out as late if your, your spouse is going to yell at you if you can't get up for church on Sunday morning or whatever. Um, but also like you just care, right? You have more kind of feelings and warmth and connections to other people. So that's like one school of thought is that what's going to help a person desist from crime is if they have these external structures or social supports that are going to put them on a new path. If I can just go on, I could tell you the other side of the coin. Oh, yeah, I am definitely okay with that. Um, you know, just go on. And I was going to ask, what are the other school of thoughts, too? Perfect. Yeah. So then we have like a very sharp contrast, which is, I would say, Pattern Noster and Bushway's identity theory of desistance, which came out of a publication in 2009, is sort of the flip side of this. And in this theory, because it's called the identity theory, basically says that when someone changes their criminal behavior, it's because they have a change within them first. And that change is a precursor and that change is necessary. 
Their model says a person's not going to leave a life of crime until they basically make that decision within themselves. Often in their model, they would say a person makes that decision because they become disillusioned with crime and they fear the self they see in the future, right? They say maybe, for example, if a person gets um, incarcerated, they see the older people in prison and say, I don't want to end up like that. That's not the life I want for myself. And because of that sort of like switch the flips inside of them, they go on a new path. Um, now, of course, the problem with this model is how do we know what's really going on inside of a person's head? And it's incredibly challenging to measure, you know, changes in attitudes and changes in agency. But I would say this is sort of the counter perspective. And then a couple of other ones that are sort of a blend of internal and external um, that maybe some of your listeners would be interested in is uh, Peggy Giordano and colleagues have a model called the Cognitive Transformation Model of Desistance. And it really is a blend of that internal stuff and the external. And, and they say that people who experience a hook for change, which sounds a lot like Samson and Love's Turning Points, are gonna, are gonna be able to identify that hook for change. Like, oh, maybe I'm getting this new opportunity. I got into school or I have a new partner, a new relationship. And then that makes them do that internal work to have a cognitive transformation. Um, so it's really a blend of the structural and sort of the internal model, but they say that their model has the play of agency. So they keep in mind that like people have choice in their life and it's not like marriages and work just happened to you. A person has to sort of see that opportunity and seek it out and want something different for themselves. And then just the final one, while I'm going on my theory rant, um, I would say is Shad Maruna's um, desistance work. And his, I would say, is different than the other three because his is really a retrospective look. So he has a book where he um, interviews people who were previously engaged in crime who have desisted and talks about how once a person has left a life of crime, they sort of have this desistance narrative. And when they look back on their life, they make sense of the way they acted before compared to how they act now in a way that separates themselves from that lifestyle. So it's not as forward looking, I would say, as the other three. So it makes it maybe not quite as useful for a policy discussion about reentry and sort of prospectively identifying people who might be, um, you know, starting a path towards assistance. Right. So there's quite a few school of thoughts here is what I'm hearing. You got um, just kind of sum it down we have social relationships and kind of like this pro-social connection to society that is kind of um, facilitating this re-entry uh, or this um, desistance and then we have our you know these kind of internal features which sounds like motivation um, and you just it just kind of have a change within you that's kind of facilitating desistance and there's another one where we're kind of we're merging it together. We're going to put internal agency in here, but we're also going to throw in pro-social connections and that's going to facilitate the systems. And then you have this last one that is like, I'm still trying to grasp it a little bit, but it has more of like a narrative approach uh, to it. That is kind of, this is what facilitates the systems. Correct. Yeah. And I think the last one is more in terms of internal change as well. So really okay. the Samson and law model is the one that's very much, Hey, it's what happens to you outside of you. It's what's the social structure you live in the bonds that you have to different people and institutions. They really put the emphasis on that in that first model of decisions. Right. 
And then the other ones all have more or less focus on the importance of what happens inside a person and how they change in their beliefs about the, their own you know, identity or their own agency to make change in their life. Um, and, and I would make a point with what you said about motivation. All these things sort of sound the same to us as like kind of lay definitions of these words, but in the research that I've looked at, motivation is kind of a different concept than these other two because a lot of people, when they collect information on them when they're incarcerated or recently released, are incredibly motivated to desist mm. and are incredibly hopeful that they're going to desist. And those things don't actually typically predict desistance very well. Okay. So motivation and hopefulness are kind of really high for everyone. And so it doesn't help us distinguish between people who eventually leave crime from those who kind of end up getting caught back up in the cycle. Right. So okay. the, the agency and the identity are like slightly different concepts and probably a little too wonky to get way into. Yeah. But just know that... Um, Unfortunately, motivation isn't enough. And part of that is related to the structural challenges that people experience in race. Right. And I and I feel like that that makes a lot of sense of you you come out, you are excited, you probably don't want to go back. And so your motivational levels are high. And then boom, you're hit with, okay, well, you can't do this, you can't do that, or you have to do this and you have to do that. And I just see, I can see how that shrinkens, you know, motivation levels um, and things like that. So I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and I guess like given you know the school of thoughts that you just I think it's only right to ask where do you fall as far as of you know what you believe about desistance and things like that with these schools of thoughts yeah so what I tried to do in one of my dissertation studies um, that's now a publication in the journal criminology um, with my colleagues from the Netherlands and my um, advisor Sean Bushway was to actually look at both of these schools of thoughts at the same time so um, the data that I use, like you said in the introduction, are from the Netherlands. Um, and the Netherlands, like most European countries, has a much lower incarceration rate than the United States and a much shorter length of sentences. So any sentences over like five years are almost unheard of, like just a very short period. So in a way, the Netherlands prison project is probably more comparable to looking at a US jail population who's maybe serving, you know, like a year or 18 months in confinement. But we tried to concurrently look at, okay, are there changes in identity based on these surveys that they did with individuals about three weeks into confinement and then six months after release? And then are there changes in their social structural area? So we had a bunch of different measures that they self-reported across all these domains, like how are they doing with housing, employment, financial security, civic engagement, which could be voting or participating in social organizations, um, having either family members or partners that they were close with that could talk to about important matters. And so we tried to like put these things together, not to compete necessarily, but just to say, hey, do they each uniquely help explain whether or not people change in their level of criminal engagement? And what we defined as change in level of criminal engagement was a change in the rate of official criminal justice contact. So we looked at the rate they had three years before that prison commitment and the rate they had three years after and say, hey, are people staying relatively flat, right? Maybe only changing one or two. So it's not really enough to say they're changing versus going up, which was only like 5% of people versus going down, which I think was maybe let's say about 30%. And what we found is that everyone had a pretty pro-social identity. People in prison in the Netherlands, and these were all men, I should note, 
they, they weren't really identifying with statements like, oh, I'm more like a criminal than not, or I'm more comfortable around other people who break the law. Like they were not identifying with those statements when they were confined, nor when they were released. Now, where they had a lot of changes was in their social structure. So all of your guests on this program have talked about all of the challenges, I think pretty much that people face when they re-enter. And one of the questions we have as scientists is, do people leaving prison encounter a lot of challenges because they already had them or because they got worse because of prison? And that's one of the questions that this paper answered. So we looked at the kind of the number of problem areas they had before versus in the six months after. And almost 60% of people had more challenges and more areas after prison than they had before. So it's not just because the kind of people who go to prison have a lot of deficits already, it's because prison makes those deficits exacerbated. Um, so in the study, when we say, okay, which one sort of matters, or do they both matter? We could not find any indication that identity linked to different engagement in crime after release, but the people who experienced more of these social structural problems were more likely to be in that tiny group of people who increased in criminal activity. So even though it was only 5% of people that increased in criminal activity, they were the ones that had more of those challenges across all of those social and structural domains. Okay, so it's safe to say that you probably are falling more on this, this social, pro-social uh, relationship side. I would say that I think it's easier for us to find evidence of that link. I would still like for our discipline to do more work in understanding the importance of identity. Because it has, when you read the theories, right, it has a lot of salience. It makes sense. Like in any kind of behavioral change we're trying to make in life, whether it's, you know, healthier diet or exercise more, stop smoking, right? We know that these things require not just a change in our environment, but also a change in our attitude. Right. And so I think that there is also something going on in both of those areas, the subjective and the structural. It's just that it's so much harder to, to study, and we don't really have the methods yet. So okay. I think that I would be sort of like those blended theories, like uh, Giordano and colleagues, hooks for change, right? You need to have something good in your external life, but you also have to know internally how to take advantage of that opportunity and prioritize it over, you know, maybe more short-term gains in criminal activity. Right. And, you know, and I agree. And I think, uh, yeah, just, it's, it's very difficult to kind of just understand what somebody is going through internally or just kind of even trying to measure or see what that looks like for us to, you know, do research in that area. Um, I am very familiar with um, that the cognitive transformation, I wouldn't say very familiar, but I'm familiar with it. It's a piece that I used in like my own thesis. Um, so, and I think like that's kind of when I figured out about that theory, that's kind of where I fall to of just like, you know, the social piece is very important. It has a lot of influence, but there's still some areas of like identity and things like that we have to figure out. And granted, I'm just in the PhD program, so I'm trying to figure it out too. Um, but I do. I so do. is everyone with their PhD. We're all just trying to figure it out too. Yes, we're all out here trying to figure it out. So, I mean, we'll get there eventually. Um, but yeah, so I guess like still on this, not necessarily what motivates the systems, because I feel like we have an idea of what does that, um, what motivates people to get to try to even start this process, but what kind of helps them maintain the system? Yeah. Yeah, so like I said, on the bad side is what really derails people from desistance is an increase 
in social and structural problems or challenges or deficits. And that's what my research has shown and that's what a ton of research has shown. Um, in terms of kind of the two major life things that Samson and Lobb talk about, marriage and work can help, but sort of the evidence is mixed, which means it kind of helps for the right people in the right circumstance. So marriage seems to be more beneficial for men than for women in the research. Um, and it does seem to have this impact where it's not just the fact that someone got married, but it's that they remained in the marriage. So some research sort of shows when people partner up and then divorce, that when they have the dissolution of the relationship, it's involved, they're involved with more crime. Um, and then with work, and this goes all the way back to the theory and a lot of research on it after Samson and Love's work, is it's not just any job, right? It has to be a job that's deemed quality by the person in it. And quality can mean a lot of different things, but basically you'd say it's a job that doesn't feel like a dead end. It's a job that doesn't feel like a drag on the person. They have to have some sort of emotional connection to it or a sense of purpose and benefit a little bit beyond, you know, just a paycheck. And I'm actually glad that you like, like you kind of cleared that up because I feel like a lot of times people just as community members or just like people who may not, you know, know the depth of it, like you just explained it is, oh, you know, just get a job and like that will make it work or, you know, it'll be easier for you when it's really not that easy. Like it, it you do have to have that um like you said, quality matters. You can't just go get a low-end job and expect for that to work for them and for them to be able to kind of still go through this process. And um, wh what is the word I really like? Sustain. Mm -hmm. um, and to be able to sustain the lifestyle that they need to either support their family, to support themselves, or whatever it is that they have to do. So I'm really glad that you um, you kind of brought that up of like, it's not just any job and it's not just any type of marriage or relationship it has to be supportive and has to have all these other kind of like prerequisites to it before it can actually, you know, help a person be able to desist from crime. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just your kind of reflection on that reminded me of a paper just came out like in the last week in the Journal of Developmental and Life Course Criminology. So that's clearly the journal for the topic today, right? Developmental yes. Life Course Criminology. Um, it is by Tim Kang and Candace Krushnick. And it basically says, you know what? People can have all these sort of changes in identity and agency and enter into a pro-social period for years, like to be in the study, they interviewed 31 people. To be in the study, they had to have a minimum of three years crime-free after having at least three prison commitments. So these are people who make a big change in their life, right? They're kind of cycling in and out of the criminal justice system, and then they have at least three years with no contact, not even an arrest. Right. And some of them, the average is more like six to nine years. So very big change. Unfortunately, all 31 of them, when they interviewed them, were back in prison. And so they tried to say, okay, these are people we would have called the sisters, right? Mm -hmm. Except for after a long enough period of time, something happened in their life again that got them caught back up in the system. And for almost everyone they talked to, it was an external challenge, um, some unforeseen event, um, you know, a health crisis in the family, a health crisis themselves, some sort of a trigger that brought back an addiction to drug or alcohol, um, a financial struggle, loss of job, loss of housing, something like that, that was the trigger that, that 
you know, sort of push them back into this lifestyle that they had given up for a really long time. And so it reiterates that interplay that you were talking about between sort of what's happening inside a person and how they react to the world. And, and what really happened for a lot of these people is when all the other opportunities were gone or when they entered into a time of crisis, they had those criminal skills to fall back on. And so for the men, it was often getting kind of back into drug dealing, if that would help them make ends meet. For the women, some of them, it was, you know, bad checks and other financial crimes. Um, but it was, it was very illuminating because they have, you know, excerpts from the conversations with individuals. And for almost all of them, they didn't really want to be back in that lifestyle. They didn't see themselves as, you know, kind of like people who wanted to be engaged in crime. It was just circumstances sort of led them back to that behavior they knew they could fall on. I would say only one person in the sample was sort of like had a good job, okay job, like in a factory, but also sort of liked the lifestyle of drug dealing. So she was doing both at the same time, but that was only one person out of 31. You know, almost everyone was like, this is not what I want for myself, but this is what happened. Yeah. And like all that you just highlighted, just, it really just shows how like uh, simple um, disruption can be in the process of desistance. Like it doesn't even, it doesn't even take uh, like, Granted, it does take, you know, committing another crime, but it's there are circumstantial things that are kind of following into you committing a crime or reengaging back into those criminal activity or using those skills again. Like you said, just loss of a house or uh, a health situation. Um, it It's just it's just that simple. Um, and, you know, and I hate that. But um, yeah. Yeah, it's just that simple. Yeah. And so, I mean, that really shows that okay, it's probably important to address both the way people think and feel mm -hmm. and also the things happening around them. But if you're going to prioritize one area or the other, you should really be prioritizing the area of improving people's social structure and their social bonds with other pro-social people and institutions rather than saying, oh, if we give you some, you know, class about how you think about yourself and letting you know you can do good things, that's probably not going to be enough to help a person overcome all of the structural barriers that they're going to have during reentry. It's just kind of too big of a hill to climb with mm -hmm. too small of an intervention. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Because you're, you're essentially you're sending them out there. And I mean, it, you're sending them out there kind of like not setting them up for the reality of what it's going to be. Um, if we kind of just focus on that area. So I do agree, like focusing on those social structure areas is really just going to be really important um, for people who are, you know, trying to desist from criminal activity. Um, yeah, so kind of going, still talking in this area of, you know, developmental um, and behavioral life course theories. Um, can you talk to us a little bit? I know there are a couple things out there that people talk about in the literature, like age and um, maybe either some other factors that are related. Can you talk to us a little bit about those? Yeah, so developmental and life course criminology, although I'm sort of talking about all the theories that deal with uh, adults, actually a lot of the theories talk about um, the whole life course, right? So um, as a scholar of uh, delinquency and crime, I know that you know that crime peaks in kind of the late teen years and into the early 20s and then rapidly declines. And so life course criminology is trying to explain why is kind of crime such a frequent life course event for late teens and early 20s and then sort of dissipates for most people 
even if they don't ever have a sanction, right? It's not like, oh, everyone who's 19 who engages in crime gets arrested and gets a punishment. And that's what makes them stop. <laughs> Most crimes are not detected, right? <laughs> Most crimes are not punished. Um, and so there must be something else going on. And life course theory says, well, the age crime curve is related to these changes in sort of agency and identity and social bonds. So um, another theory that we didn't talk about is Terry Moffat's life course, Persistent Adolescent Limited, because it's more focused on juveniles, as it says with the name adolescents. But she says, you know, most people who engage in crime when they're in teenagers is because they have this thing that she calls a maturity gap. Basically, you're biologically mature. You want more responsibility. You want to be able to do something with your life. And everyone's constantly telling you, no, 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 right? No, you have to go to school. No, you have a curfew. No, you can't get a job. There are rules against employment when you're a teen. And so kind of a way of exercising that autonomy and that freedom. Kids are going to kind of act out. Also, there's lower self-control at that age group and a lot of things going on with the brain. But most kids, when they get a little older, they say, oh, now I have this other opportunity, right? I've left my parents' house. I have this ability to go to college or start a trade or get in a relationship and they can exercise that independence and that maturity in a more pro-social way. And then they get connected to those other institutions, kind of like what Samson and Love talked about. So what this means for re-entry in the criminal justice system is that if most people are sort of actively engaged in crime in their early 20s and are probably gonna start making better choices pretty soon after that, we shouldn't have, you know, 20 year prison sentences for, I don't know, let's say, you know, drug crimes or nonviolent crimes, especially because the likelihood that that person's going to be engaging in crime in 10 years time is very unlikely. And so we wouldn't have as big of a challenge with reentry if we didn't have as many people in the criminal justice system or they weren't serving as long of periods that disrupt their ties to the community. And so Life course theory sort of has us re-examine not only who goes to prison, but for how long. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, and I think I think that makes a lot of a lot of sense. Um, and you know, I guess like we've talked, oh, we've talked about a lot of theories. And I know theory can be really heavy on some people, um, but it's so important to understand like when you're you're talking about a subject like assistance and when you're trying to make efforts and you know make change, you know, in the way that we're trying to make change. So in with us talking about change and things like that, given all these school of thoughts that we just talked about, uh, all these various aspects, marriage, age, um, we've talked about a ton of them. How do we translate that into, you know, research, uh, clinical practice, or even policy? Yeah. So probably in terms of how desistance and life course theory sort of have implications for reentry more directly, I would say there's sort of like three big areas. Um, so the first one is just the one that I keep going back to, and I think sounds familiar to your listeners from a lot of your other episodes, which is we really have to address the structural challenges, right? Because all of the research that looks at both structural and identity or agentic things says either the internal stuff doesn't matter or it only matters until the structural stuff gets thrown in. And then once we account for that, really the hurdle is to get over these external barriers or to put the external supports in place that are going to help foster and maintain a person's change towards a path of, path of desistance. So obviously all the things that your other you know, guests have mentioned. 
safe, uh, stable housing, education, employment opportunities, transportation, strategies to strengthen family relationships, right? So some research has shown that when people have the identity of like a good father or a good provider, that's, that helps them desist. So helping people, you know, realize their strengths in other roles beyond criminal um, and decreasing barriers to civic engagement, right? So another way that people feel more engaged is if, you know, they have the tools they need to connect with society, IDs, voting rights, um, you know, other kind of barriers to different aspects of life. So I'd say that. The second thing is that because identity and agency also matter, we have to help sustain people's identity as non-criminal when they get out. And this goes directly back to your um, episode with Dr. Bopre about identity and labels, right? And so if we want people to have a pro-social identity, we probably shouldn't constantly refer to them as, you know, ex-con or you know, convict or criminal or whatever the label might be. So the federal justice system several years ago made this movement to try to work towards person first language, you know, a person with a criminal record, a person who is returning from prison. Um, and, and, that's, and that's singularly important if we also think about identity mattering. So it kind of removes some external barriers, but it also helps maintain a pro-social identity. Um, and then finally, and this is sort of my own kind of pet issue or pet project, is thinking more about prison and incarceration as a possible turning point. So Samson and Lobb's theory, you know, my course theory of, of desistance says turning points are these hinge events in a person's life that turns them onto a different path. The things they typically focused on were marriage and work, but they also looked at incarceration. They looked at interviews with men in their study, and some of them said, you know what, like getting locked up actually was a positive turning point. I'm not, I'm certainly not advocating, hey, let's lock more people up to see if it's a positive turning point for them. I'm saying among the people that are already going to be incarcerated, how can we ensure that it is that wake up point that provides them with the support services um, to help them with their social and structural issues? and also the support services that helps them with their identity and agency. So we can actually make sure that prison doesn't lead to a net deficit or more cumulative disadvantage, but instead does kind of provide that opportunity for change. Okay, yeah, that and that makes a lot of sense. And you know, for the first two that you mentioned, I really wanted to state like, I know you said like, um, I, what I like personally is that there is a consistent pattern across the guests that I have had of people just saying of like structural barriers in this kind of civic engagement stuff and, you know, labeling are important areas. And, you know, I, I know it probably sounds like to the listeners of like, they keep saying the same thing over and over again, but it's no, it's not even like just saying the same thing over and over again. It's really just letting you know that is what's really important right now. And like, that's really what we need to emphasize um, and yeah. kind of focus on. So it's not just regurgitating the same thing. Um, just really trying to put the importance out there but I really do like the idea because I've never thought of like granted uh, I probably have but like never really just sat on it of looking at incarceration as a turning point as like a wake-up call because essentially that's what it is of this like well you know I went I went and had this experience and now I want to make sure I don't go back because I had that experience okay. yeah and I should note that Samson Alam we're certainly not the first people who talked about incarceration as a turning point. Um, I came across this in a reading when I was doing my dissertation. The author, Oscar Wilde, who wrote um, 
was it Dorian Gray? I can't remember. I'm not a literature person. <laughs> um, oh basically, he was incarcerated in the 1890s and he wrote, you know, you know, I had two great turning points in my life. The first was when my father sent me to school and the second was when I had this incarceration. And so people in literature, right, who write narratives about their lives and think back on it, have been thinking about confinement as an experience that can put a person on a new path. And most of the evidence that we have shows that particularly for social structure things, when we incarcerate someone, it kind of puts them on a worse path. So if we want it to be a turning point, um, you know, in the right direction, we need to make it so individuals have the tools that they need to desist from crime rather than, you know, persist or even accelerate. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I like that. I like that word accelerate. Um, So I guess that, um, that leads me to one of my, one of my final questions, not the final question yet, but uh, are there things that the given, you know, thinking of desistance as a process and like, even just like the research that you've done on confinement um, and looking at that as a turning point, are there things that the criminal justice system should be reconsidering when it comes to, you know, desistance and moving towards um, uh, a more desistance framework, I guess is what it would be called. Yeah, and, and I think that desistance framework that, that you mentioned is what's coming out of those National Academy of Science reports and the National Institute, National Institute of Justice. That's why we say NAS and NIJ. Um, so the first thing is that a desistance framework is going to help remind us that we don't want to look at reentry, success, and failure in those dichotomous terms. So we talked about earlier, those yes, no, success, failure. If you have one new arrest, now you're in the failure bucket, right? For far too long, we've sort of thought about the criminal justice system in punitive terms and sort of, you know, discarding people, but that doesn't really work. And so we need to think about desistance as a process. And when we think about it as a process, we know that future engagement in crime isn't necessarily um, this, you know, mark of failure, because we want to look at it in the broader picture to say, is it bigger gaps, longer periods between the failure events, or is the new type of crime much less severe and different and has less of a negative impact, right? So we're trying to look at the process of desistance, not just yes, no recidivism. Um, the other thing that I think, and is especially was in the National Academy's report, is looking at desistance in the context of the person's life. So even with the failure events in the criminal justice system, are they making gains in other areas? And I think I said this at the start of the conversation, but it's worth reiterating, right? If they're making gains in family responsibilities, if they're improving um, in, you know, getting legal work and paying taxes, are we seeing, you know, other signs of improvement in pro-social and conventional behavior that would say, you know, it's a mixed bag, but they're, they're moving in the right direction. And then finally, uh, because desistance research has us think about the process by which people um, kind of engage in and then also get a criminal record, we know that criminal justice contacts are not evenly distributed, right? Certain people who are engaged in crime are more likely to have that crime detected because of where they live or their age or their race or their gender. And also once it's detected, certain people are more likely to have their crime result in a conviction or other kinds of punishment. So when we take a sort of a desistance focus look at reentry, we remind ourselves that criminal justice contact is not merely a reflection of a person's behavior, but it's their behavior and how the system detected and responded to it. And so I think a desistance focus will also help us 
be mindful of disparities in the system, particularly geographic and racial disparities. And, and that'll be you know, another major positive um, influence of using desistance and life course theory to kind of reimagine different aspects of reentry. Okay. Yeah. I, re- I really like all of those points. And, um, you know, I think that's great um, that, you know, that's where we're moving towards. And, you know, I'm looking forward to what the NIJ and um, the other agencies are going to be putting out and the type of research um, that they're going to be doing and what type of research I can come up with, you know, with just talking about yeah. assistance. So um, I will, I do want to ask one last question. And it's just like a question of if you could tell, Granted, we have talked about a lot, but like, if you could tell our audience one thing to remember about desistance, like kind of what would it be? Yeah, okay. So I think the one thing that I would tell your audience about desistance is that prioritize the definition of desistance as a process over desistance as a cessation in crime. And remember that that process involves not just kind of examining a person's changing relationship with criminal behavior, but also their changing relationship with other behaviors that replace that criminal behavior. So whether it's parenthood or partnership or, you know, giving back in some way to the community in terms of volunteer work or paid labor, um, really trying to think about desistance and returning citizens holistically um, and not just in this binary success failure way. I also want to dispel a myth that a lot of people have about um, returning citizens. And this is a myth that I have in some of my own work, so I have to be careful my own self, mm-hmm. is that myth that most people go back to prison. Yeah. So actually most people who experience prison do not go back. Most people who are released in a single year, about 50% go back, but that's because the people who cycle through prison make up a bigger proportion of the, the release cohort. So a bunch of you know, recent research has tried to dispel that myth and say, you know what, most people in prison don't go back. So if maybe we had less sort of fear and animosity towards returning citizens because we had better recognition that most of them aren't going to have a severe enough crime to return to prison, that we would be more open to policies and you know interventions that are inclusive and welcoming and add that positive structure to their lives. Yes, of course. And you know, I thank you because I think both of those are really good points of, you know, just to keep in mind and for our audience to really reflect on as we end for today. But Dr. Hickard, I do want to thank you for coming on More Life and, you know, coming on here and sharing your expertise and, you know, just giving us um, a wealth of knowledge about what desistance is. And you guys, I really encourage you guys to, um, if you want to know more information about Dr. Hickard, I will put her link down at the bottom in the description box. And then as always, follow More Life on Instagram at More Life, the reentry podcast. And thank you guys for tuning in with us today. Have a great day. Thank you.